everyone for today i'm discussing jean renault with brad dukes and uh, i'll hand the mic over to him so he can introduce himself further hey everybody i'm brad dukes i i guess if you're a twin peaks fan i wrote a twin peaks book called reflections and oral history of twin peaks and that was a blast loved it i also used to run a website where well i guess i had a podcast too the brad dukes show it got canceled by me but it, we, we had a lot of uh really cool guests like uh robert forster and Pamela Gidley, really cool Twin Peaks people. Anyway, um, I've also been to the Twin Peaks Festival uh, when it was up and running, uh, I think, nine times. So Twin Peaks is uh, near and dear to my heart. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I guess the uh, before we really get into Jean Renault in the original series, um, if we're going to go in chronological order, in The Secret History, uh, on a preliminary view, it's uh, it mostly shows how in the Andrew Packard case, I believe, that talks about how Jean Renault knew Hank for like at least 20 years beforehand. Cause in the show, it just shows that he, when he's about to leave one eyed Jacks that, uh, that Jean Renault and, uh, it basically grabs from behind. But in this, it actually talks about how, uh, Jean Renault actually sabotaged the football game where Hank dropped the ball and it was quote unquote, because he can. <laughs> and then, uh, it was sort of like a, I guess a grooming tactic to get Hank to work for him and make border runs. And that uh, this is something that uh, he was doing, you know, well after he married Norma, claiming that he was always on the road. Um, I wasn't sure if you had any thoughts on the accuracy or if anything that lines up for you or if it just seems contradictory. Gosh, the secret history, I almost kind of have to put it in its own universe because it feels disconnected from the original series. I'm not really sure it's much, it's very connected to the return. It just feels like it's in this bubble by itself. But I mean, I, I like that because I love kind of like the, what do you call it? The family tree of Twin Peaks. And it's like, you've got the Renaults and the Jennings and the Martells. And it's kind of like, I love that aspect. And, you know, I would totally be down for a, a prequel series that like, you know, explored <laughs> the town drama. Yeah. Cause uh, when I think of it, I think more so about how, I guess it's, you could view it as ambiguous in, uh, in the show because uh, because uh, they never explicitly say, like, you know, we met for the first time. But I have this broad stroke for the secret history that this is basically a document that Major Briggs kind of doctored a lot of stuff, both critical and innocuous, just in case the Cooper doppelganger ever came across it. So I actually mm -hmm. I view that whole part of the Renault slash Hank relationship as just being this, uh, basically being this, like, tall tale lie presented in a document just in case Cooper's doppelganger found it and it just kept him away from Twin Peaks for 25 years. <laughs> that I like your uh, your theory there. Thank you. I figure it's probably best to because it doesn't really give a framework for who for who Jean Renault is. But the thing is that when you first see him in season two, uh, Michael Parks does a perfect job where he's very eloquent yet unsettling when we first uh, meet him, or specifically when Audrey meets him. Yeah, I mean he kind of comes in out of nowhere, and you're like, who is this guy? And he, you know, he's so laid back. So I don't know. I. Uh... I, I thought Michael Parks was absolutely perfect for that role, honestly. <laughs> yeah, there, there's some about the uh, the candy scene where it's like uh, again, it's very he, he's because you when you look at say Bernard and Jacques, 
they're kind of what you expect when, uh, like in the case of Bernard, where he's a drug mule and he kind of fits the bill for it. And then uh, Jacques, his actions speak way louder than words in terms of uh, how scummy he is. But there's just something about how classy John is, where he's, you know, he, he there's something about the way he presents himself where he's a much more cordial, but it's also 10 times more dangerous. Yeah, he's like a psycho. It's like, you know, <laughs> he's got this poor girl tied up and, you know, offering her caramel candy. It's just like, who is this guy? And yet, you know, he, he fits right in to all those crazy Twin Peaks people. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, I think of also how he's very similar yet different to Blackie because they both like uh, exude a certain elegance and they have a certain way of how they can command their presence. I guess when I think of Blackie, I think more so how in like the secret diary in particular, when Laura talks about her time working at One Night Jacks, where it's about how she just injects like straight up heroin into her. And then uh, a lot of stuff in the original series really highlights that as well. And the biggest difference between them is that I think her addiction is kind of like a thing that's on her way out. Like um, I think of the scene with uh, Jerry Horn in the season two premiere where he's getting like what seems to be borderline violent and he has the lamp. He's saying like, oh, you used to be so pretty. And there's just like a certain way of how it kind of seems like she can still have that certain that certain presence, but also people are kind of like looking down on her as well. Yeah, I I always, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people from the Twin Peaks world, but I always wanted to talk to Victoria Catlin, who played Blackie, because I don't know. I mean, she didn't have a lot of, you know, she had scenes, but it wasn't like, you know, she was out in Twin Peaks meeting all these people and conversing with them. She was kind of insular. And so I don't know. I, I love that little world of one-eyed jacks. It, you know, it, it kind of, to me, watching this original season, I always kind of thought the Red Room had to be tied to one-eyed jacks somehow you know so i always paid close attention when i was when i was <laughs> 9 year 9 and 10 years old first watching the show when it would show one eyed jacks because it just felt so so bad with so many interesting people yeah that that's the thing is that uh is that with uh one eyed jacks and i guess we'll say jacques cabin the original series where there's just the prominence of red and in the case of jacques cabin the red curtains where it just it, it just feels like there's that like i guess the road to the black lodge of sorts where there's enough little things to kind of like, you know, even though you're watching stuff in a very subversive soap opera format, there's those little fantastical things to keep you on your toes. Yeah, that that cabin scene is amazing. It's one of my, I would say, got to be in my top five of all time when they take a trip into the woods. <laughs> and the talk of Blackie and then moving on to Ben Horn is that I think of how in uh, the Great Northern, because uh, Jean goes to see uh, Ben Horn directly to show that Audrey's been held captive. And there's a part where Jean says, uh, where actually he dodges a, uh, dodges a punch and he says, like, careful, I'm just the messenger. And the thing is that he says that, but there's some about the way he, again, maybe it's just his presence that he commands, but it just seems like he's kind of just saying it, like he knows he's in more control, both in regards to Ben and Blackie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, to be a little bit of a critic, something about that scene feels off that, you know, Jean Renault just shows up at this guy's office with a video of his kidnapped daughter <laughs> and like, I don't know. And it's in the daytime. It just, I, it it's like, I think that scene would have played better at night also, but I don't know. It was just weird to me, but like what's so cool to me is it's kind of like, I kind of look, we'll watch that scene and think, Oh man, Michael Parks and Richard Beamer are in the same scene together and they've been in so much cool stuff. <laughs> so you know, it's a great scene. I, I wish that those two had had more scenes because I, I think I think Richard he really liked to 
get crazy and go out there. Like he liked the civil war scenes. So it would have, would have been cool to see him do some more scenes with Michael Parks. Oh yeah. I, I, I kind of wonder, cause the thing is that the, he technically didn't have to show up. It could just been, I mean, a, a lot, a lost highway type of ordeal where the tape is just dropped off at his door. But I, I, I at least think that someone just kind of thought that those two had a certain dynamic that they could play well off each other. Cause uh, the thing is that despite the fact that Ben is the one with his daughter, clearly missing and kidnapped he's not looking good in this either because uh as we see throughout this whole progression that he's concerned that hank will one get audrey back but also it seems like the money takes precedent as well so we're really just <laughs> yeah. dealing with two complete scumbags who kind of have their own elegance uh, to how they handle themselves yeah L luckily they've got dale cooper and harry truman you know in the middle carrying the plot because that's that's some pretty shaky dealings for for organized criminals like that <laughs> oh yeah. The one that I think is kind of a interesting and maybe mildly strange is that there's that part where uh Audrey when she's dragged into uh Blackie slash uh Jean's office where uh Emery uh she calls him out saying that he hit me. And there's that part where Emery's trying to like uh downplay it, but then he just shoots him and he's like, Oh, yeah. that'll never happen, you know, while you're here. And it's like, I don't know. They injected her with heroin, so this is already kind of background, but it seems like he had, has a certain degree of principles, like it makes sense in his mind. Yeah, I mean, I think they really set up Jean to be a really significant villain because he hangs around for a while. And, you know, I guess I think that's kind of cool that, you know, they send Cooper and Truman in there and they don't get Jean and he's still out there in the wild as a bad guy. Because a lot of villains in Twin Peaks, you know, got spoiled. So they, they would take a, a, you know, a somewhat sinister villain like, you know, Ben Horn or, you know, Catherine. And it's like you take their edge away and they're not as cool, you know, later on in the series as they were at the beginning. But with Jean, you know, you're really establishing a straight up badass. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, in the case of Ben Horn is that um, I know what you mean where he loses his edge, but um, on my recent rewatch, I kind of thought about the scene where Ben, when he sees uh, Leland slash Bob, when he's locked in and he has this, he's like the only one that's like completely blindsided by just this whole ordeal. And I, in my mind, and maybe this is my way to kind of soften the blow for the Civil War arc for me, but I kind of look as that he kind of had this like meltdown, like a midlife crisis meltdown scene that Leland just set off in such like a supernatural way. And presumably how he, you know, discovering what he did to Laura and Maddie that, uh, you know, yeah. there's all this other stuff like with Catherine, where she basically takes everything from him. Audrey calls him out for his deviant behavior. But there's something about seeing Leland like that. That was a straw that broke the camel's back. And I'm like, oh, yeah. so I guess that's almost like a quasi born again Christian thing of like when he snaps out of it, he's trying to be good in this like overtly persistent manner. Yeah. And I think that stuff is hilarious. Like when he's like, you know, walking around with the carrot and like <laughs> the books, he's like, this is the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know, I just think it's truly hilarious because it's like character of Ben just has like this 360 degrees of an existence. <laughs> and it's all like within the span of like that, uh, I guess that back half of season two because uh, on the tie of stuff that gets a uh, laugh out of me, I like when he has the carrot and then he actually pulls him out for John Justice Wheeler. And he kind of has this look of like, I mean, and maybe it's not actively like, what is this? But he actually, I think the fact that he bites into it, just kind of going along with it, I'm just like, okay, well, yeah. this uh, there's something uh, to take away from this. Yeah. I mean, here's another little tidbit. It's like, I can work Twin Peaks into anything. 
like if I'm at the grocery store and I'm looking at ice cream, I'll see like one of those like like tall skinny cartons. And I'll think about Ben Horn in season one when he's like at that little dance for the Norwegians. And he's like sitting there eating ice cream out of this carton in the middle of this party. And it's so ridiculous. And I just every time I see that ice cream, I just laugh to myself. Kind of stepping away from Ben for a little bit, though, and more so moving to Nancy Blackie's sister, is that mm -hmm. I feel like in a lot of ways she does foreshadow, once again, that Blackie has kind of run her course. Because there's even that whole part where Blackie's like, oh, it's like a, because very clearly there's something more intimate with Jean and Nancy. And it's just another thing to kind of reaffirm that, that this is just one other thing about Blackie. And that Nancy, I, from what I understand, she was also kind of in on basically killing Blackie as well. Yeah, because isn't Nancy, doesn't she have like an off-screen death? Like, what happens to her? I, I'm uh, well, blanking. To be, to be fair, I think for her, it's when Dell rescues Audrey, where she's about to like pull a knife on Cooper, and he kind of knocks her out. And yeah. uh, that's the last we see of her, as far as I can, as far as I can remember. Yeah, you're, you're probably right. I, I remember Jean goes away for a few episodes, and then he comes back, I believe, um, so I was trying to get my, my story straight there. Yeah. <laughs> but actually on the topic of Jean is that um, that part where when he kills Blackie and there's the part where clearly because he stabs her and there's the blood coming out of her mouth and he does this thing where he looks up and he looks at, at Truman dead in the eye and you see the blood off of his mouth. I was like, this this feels like the real face of Jean Renault. Like all the elegance, <laughs> he has all this elegance, uh, you know, throughout every scene. But this is the scene where it feels like he feels unmasked. Yeah. And he also has like that secret dagger stuffed in his sleeve. So quite a quite a character there. <laughs> so uh, he ends up missing Cooper, Audrey and Truman, but then he finds Hank. And then uh, I know we mentioned everything about Hank before, but did you have any thoughts of like what it was like for those few days uh, with or without the secret history? Are we talking about like the three days after Leland dies? Uh, well, I guess we could do that, but because um, uh, I think that's the last time we see Jean Renault before everything about the murder. Because uh, the uh, okay, yeah, because because uh, the thing is that uh, Hank he's got he's disappeared for a few days, and uh, when he shows up the double R, he's just saying that oh, there's some people in my life that want to bring me down, and he's not saying anything about Jean at all. Uh, but okay. and also, he's trying to find a way to weasel his way back into Norma's heart. Yeah. Okay. So it's coming together now. I forgot that. Jean goes away, we have the three-day break, and then he comes back. So My thing is that uh, with the Daryl Ludwig uh, state prosecutor badge, I wasn't sure if uh, Hank actually had a tall tale lie. And this is a step away from the secret history. This is just more in the confines of the original series. If that was yeah. a thing that you know that fooled uh, Jean or no for a moment, or because I, I feel like that was the one thing you know again keeping the the secret history out of context is that that's the one thing that kind of kept uh, Hank alive. Because you think of uh, you think of Preston King, where he's the part of the Canadian police, and he kind of has his own way of basically helping uh, Jean Renault across the border. So I wasn't sure if that was a thing of like Hank kind of just like built off of that <laughs> to just kind of keep his skin. Yeah, it's interesting because they you know they show that scene where he catches Hank, and then they disappear for a while. It's like you know there's so many characters in Twin Peaks. It's like I used to have this chart that would tell me like what what episodes people were in, and it's like. Some certain characters would, you know, come in for a couple of episodes and be gone for 20 and come back. I mean, there's just people all over the place. So it's that's cool that they left those two characters kind of hanging for a while when they you know, start resolving the murder and all that. On the topic of uh, characters who kind of shift around back and forth, I didn't realize how much Tim Pinkle was in Twin Peaks until my last rewatch. I'm like, oh, wait, so he's a taxidermist. 
he uh, he cre- he brings in all that uh, stuff for Leo Johnson for when he's uh, basically in comatose. He's uh, running the Miss Twin Peaks pageant, and I was like, I was like, oh, and then the Pine Weasel, of course. And uh, it, it just it, it's just one of those things where he's just across all these absurd aspects that I was like, oh, okay, I guess this is the same guy. Yeah, I think David Lander, who plays Pinkle, I think he was like neighbors with David Lynch, and I think I read a story somewhere where like they were talking on the sidewalk and he just you know said hey come be in twin peaks <laughs> i know that ian buchanan had something similar where he filmed a commercial with uh david lynch i forgot what it was for but he just like hey you make a great dick and then he had no context <laughs> that whatsoever but then of course he just accepted dick tremaine right after that yeah it seems like it was in some kind of like commercial for a, a, a certain brand or maybe perfume maybe mm-hmm. yeah christian dior i think i think you're right i think that was it moving back is that uh because i think the next time we see uh jean renault is during the events of dead dog farm and this is around when i believe it's hank brings ernie to one-eyed jacks and strangely enough Preston king he's actually the one who says that he's weary of ernie just because of course the whole sweating profusely and uh he's not really he's pretty evasive with his answers and Jean, for whatever reason, says, oh, let's just let this play out. And um, I guess it kind of works for him because there's that part where uh, because Ernie sweats so much that it sets off the wiretap and then the smoke bursts through his uh, bursts through his shirt. But I, I just thought that was a very strange take that Jean just kind of let that run its course. Yeah, I mean, I I love the Dead Dog Farm stuff. Any weird house out in the woods that you want to put a plot line with, I'm I'm in for it. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's, I thought it was cool to kind of get Hank and John and the Crooked Mountie all together kind of conspiring to take Cooper down. I thought that works. I know a lot of people beat up this part of Twin Peaks in season two, but I always say there's gold in every episode. You have to see them all. No, that's the thing is that uh, all the stuff with uh, Cooper basically being uh, taken away from the FBI, that's still actually a pretty good plot thread because uh, it does add like a good conflict. And also it's like you were saying about Dead Dog Farm is that even when we don't really see Ernie, Hank, or Jean there, just the vibe of the place just has this, it kind of tells their story without actually telling their story. Um, and just about how just like just grimy and just gross just every all their endeavors are yeah i mean i when cooper gets kicked out of the fbi when he does that little speech to roger hardy in the office i love that like cooper looks like he's <laughs> about to crack and it's like whoa like this is different than what we've seen and it's mm-hmm. like those episodes after Laura Palmer die, they they have this strange energy to them. It's like the it's like Twin Peaks has been microwaved or something. <laughs> no, it's, I remember there was a time where, and this is more so like the uh, the shift in season two is that I had a friend when she was watching the original series, she would text me her thoughts as it would go along. And he must have said something about like how things will change after Leland's death. And she's like, the two brothers find is really weird. This 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 whole episode just feels off and. I will say this is that my while while I do think there is a a shift in quality that I have softened up on each rewatch. Like you can kind of see where some of the plot threads where where they can kind of build off, or you can kind of just like take it for as it is. Uh, but yeah, like my my active dislike from the first time has just turned into something far more passive, and even stuff like the Evelyn uh, plot thread because I was like, you know, people can say what they will about it, but it's also one of the only plot threads that feels like definitely in character of James in response to the death of Laura and Maddie. So I think on those grounds, I'm actually uh, fine with it. I mean, that first James and Evelyn scene to me 
it's really good. Like I, I know people don't like that plot, but the first scene had promise, you know, and I always get a kick out of it. Um, but back to episode 17, one thing I did want to throw out is Tina Rathborn, who directed that episode. We spent about, I don't know, two hours on the phone discussing that one episode. Like she went back and rewatched it. And one thing that she said was that she didn't meet with David Lynch or Mark Frost to talk about it. And I know that episode was written by a first time writer to the show, Trisha Brock. So it's kind of like Twin Peaks has this very hard reset. And you don't have any kind of insight from the two guys that understand at the core what it should be. So whenever I watch episode 17, it's like, it's very tough to remove that information. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, that's why that, that episode feels so weird. No, that's actually, that's a really good point. I didn't even think of like the, why the trajectory was the way it was, but um, yeah, that's a really good way to put it. But uh, I guess the, cause for Jean Renault, because uh, I feel like this is like saving the best for last is that once he has this hostage situation with Cooper, you actually wrote this like a year and a half ago on Blue Rose about like one of the best like underrated scenes in the original series. And yeah. um, I mean, of course, I'll go through my take, but um, just because, uh, you know, you have thought about this scene for a long time. Uh, what was your biggest takeaway, like, say, from when you first watched it and how it stands out even decades later? Well, this is such a weird scene. Like Michael Parks is so great but like he is like whispering it's like maybe this is a bad dream and you're the dreamer and it's like you know it's like i i can't imagine watching that back in 1991 when like you know your tvs weren't that great and it's like that's a really dark scene he's talking so quietly it's almost like what in the world is going on but like you know you can watch it in high definition with a good sound system i mean that's one of the best monologues i mean he he kind of lays out the question of the, you know, the greatest question of Twin Peaks, who is the dreamer? And when he compares Cooper to a bad dream, it's like, you, know, you brought the dream with you. Never, all these people start dying. And of course, you know, 25 years later, you know, who's the dreamer? Is this a bad dream? <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's one of the things I was thinking of, because um, I do my rewatches uh, once a year. And I believe it was last year when I watched it, is that looking in chronological order, He's basically the first one to call out Cooper, uh, you know, in this regard, because, uh, you know, he has the whole thing about how after Laura was killed, that Cooper came in and the dream became the nightmare. And he's hoping that if Cooper goes out, that the nightmare will go away. Uh, and the thing is that um, the only other character that says that in the original series is Josie, uh, oddly enough, right before her death. And the thing is that they're in a uh, clearly a uh, in a line of work of just explicitly criminal work. Uh, so I think people at the time could probably dismiss it, but you look at stuff like, you know, in season three, where it really permeates uh, around that point about how Cooper really does just make a bad situation worse. And it feels like that change of how people looked at Cooper in the original series definitely reaffirms what Jean Renault says once we get to the return. Yeah. I mean, I think if you watch the pilot and you watch it really closely, you realize Cooper is a much more kind of a sadistic <laughs> personality it's like he is so different in the pilot than when you get to like that first season because he's just so much more softer and likable i mean the pilot cooper is likable but you know it's just there's something like 
you know, he wants bad things. <laughs> he wants to find bad things. Actually, um, when, when you say it like that, um, I remember really, I think it was the second time I watched the pilot and it was actually my first time watching the international version. So I just watched it completely independently on its own. And I'm thinking of like the way he smiles and uh, the scene that really stands out is uh, when he finds the letter under Laura's now. And there's a part he's like, Sheriff, we have a lot to talk about. I was like, eh, that smile seems a little off and it's lingering a little too long. It has a, it has less of a Cooper, more of like Jake Gyllenhaal from Nightcrawler type of thing. And I'm just like, eh, it's like the characterization was definitely a little off on him in that point. Yeah. I mean, I like, I like the pilot for what it is. And I kind of like that we have that, a little glimpse of that Cooper. So I'm okay with it, but yeah, <laughs> Cooper does have a couple of strange moments throughout where you're like, Whoa, what just, what just happened there? Yeah, no, it's uh, I, I think the, with him that uh, I think, cause the first time you watch it, you're just so engrossed by his presence. But when you see how much they build off of it in the original series, it's like, Oh yeah, I guess he was a little bit colder compared to what we, when we were introduced. And it is, it's again, it's sort of like I, I'm on the same page with you where I definitely like it still, but it's definitely a different reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess circling back. So I got to interview Michael Parks for my Twin Peaks book. And, you know, what was funny was, you know, I was trying to find all these people to interview. And I remember, like, I found his phone number and I was like, I guess I'm just going to call him. So <laughs> I remember on my lunch break one day, I mean, this was like almost 10 years ago. I called and it was like a voicemail message. Like it's like a real answering machine. And it was like Michael Parks talking. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, I guess I'm going to leave Michael Parks a voicemail. And so, you know, left the voicemail and like, I live in Nashville. And so the time zones are different and the phone rings like on a, I remember it was a work night. I was about to go to bed and you know, I saw it was from California and I was like, oh, I better answer this. And it was Michael Parks. And he was like, it's like, so I hear you want to talk to me. <laughs> so we do our interview and it's like so late and I don't care because I finally, you know, got a hold of Michael Parks. And we, uh, we hung up and I went to bed and I woke up the next morning and I saw a voicemail. <laughs> and it was Michael Parks. And he was like, you know, I just wanted to tell you, he was like, Kyle McLaughlin kid. He really knew what he was doing. And I really liked him and I really just wanted you to know that. <laughs> so, you know, Michael Parks was a huge, huge Kyle McLaughlin fan, even after all those years. Oh, that's really great. Um, yeah. Cause that's the <laughs> thing is that uh, I, I was glad that you agreed for this because um, like I mentioned with the blue rose article, but also when you had that thing about Michael Parks in one of the earlier issues, I was like, man, he's really been on top of genre. No, for a long time now. <laughs> yeah i mean michael parks is just a really interesting guy i mean he, he had a big career late 60s and then he kind of was in a lot of just b movies for a while and then twin peaks was really his kind of entry back into pop culture i guess because just a few years later tarantino uh, started casting him and some really cool characters um so I don't know. It's for me, I love Michael Park so much when I see Jean, I don't know. I just see such immense talent and such a really cool, badass guy in real life with, uh, with Michael. Yeah. Cause uh, it's like you're saying with um, Tarantino is that uh, cause he plays the pimp and kill bill volume two in particular. And he still has, again, it's sort of like similar to Jean Renault where he has a certain elegance with how he talks uh, about himself, but it's also not exactly the most, I guess, 
family-friendly line of work either, but there's just something about the way he handles himself that I guess it's not unlike, say, Ian McKellen, where there's just a certain way that they handle themselves where they can definitely carry that energy into a, a lot of the roles. Yeah, he's also the sh- uh, the sheriff, I think, in Kill Bill Part 1. Or no, he, and he's the sensei, or no, I think he's Bill's dad. I don't know. Michael Parks could just about do anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think that uh, kind of covers all the grounds for Jean. Um, was there anything that uh, you wanted to bring up or stuff that we may have overlooked? Oh, gosh. No, I don't think so. Um, I don't know. If, if you skip around in Twin Peaks, give his uh, his stuff a shot. Because you know if you're skipping around, like many people do, you're going to miss some great stuff. Oh, I absolutely agree. But um, I guess since we're winding down, uh, was there anything you want me to plug or anything that you have lined up that uh, you'd like uh, people to know about? Oh, gosh. Well, I've got an article coming up in the next Blue Rose magazine about the Lost Highway soundtrack. I had a lot of fun writing that. And so, yeah, that's my my next thing (laughs) coming down the pipeline. Yeah, no, I'll make sure to uh, put a link for that uh, for once I put this out. And, uh, of course, uh, just get the word out about that Lost Highway issue as well. But I just want to say thank you for coming on, Brad. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Hi, everyone. So this is actually from when I posted about the mailbag a little while back, and I just want to respond to some of the questions. The first questions come from Twin Peaks Grammar on Twitter, where he asks, In which ways, if any, has conducting your analysis in public changed, sharpened, and or hindered your approach? For me, personally, uh, conducting my analysis in public is a lot different because... You don't realize how different these conversations are until you actually have to do it on a public platform. Like, it's one thing when you just talk with friends or fans, like, on a one-on-one basis, but when you know you're being recorded, there's a totally different dynamic where you think differently, you try to articulate differently, trying to respond on the fly is different. Um, It's something actually I struggled quite a bit early on, but I think I've gotten better with each episode. Twin Peaks Grammar also asks if there are any specific aspects of my interpretive-slash-analytical approach that I can translate into actionable advice for adolescent students or their teachers. Well, the part about the adolescent students and their teachers uh, is a little oddly specific for me. I would say that I tried my, my best to be authentic, yet low-key professional, and also concise, which even after doing as many episodes as I have can be tricky, uh, especially since I have a new co-host each week. Uh, the thing about it is that when you do talk with different people, there's a certain energy you get or trying to have a certain discourse or just trying to keep the flow of conversation. So it does actually add a little bit of challenge each time. And it's actually something I do like because having a different co-host is actually what makes this uh, what makes this podcast so exciting for me. Moving on to his next question, he also asks, have you ever tweeted something especially memorable or enjoyable or if there's any story there? For Twitter in particular, I actually definitely have a memorable story because when I announced my Secret History specials, I actually uh, included Mark Frost on the tweet, and he actually quote retweeted me back saying, oh really? And it got quite a few likes and retweets, and I got quite a few follows as well. And to me, that was a huge deal that Mark Frost actually seems to have an interest in what I'm going to do for the Secret History specials. So that's actually a big factor of why I'm trying to do my best as much for the research that uh, you'll see as these go on, because what was supposed to be a six-part special is now turned into an eight-part special, and I really hope it's something that I can rise up to the challenge just for like my co-hosts, because I feel like I picked a lot of good people for it, and I want to make sure I'm putting in just as much effort as they are. And before I move on to the next part, I did want to thank Twin Peaks Grammar for taking the time to ask these questions, because I thought these were really good and articulate, and I hope I answer them properly for him. 
For the next part, this is actually a voicemail I got from 1400 River Road, so I'll play that before I expand further on it. Hello, this is 1400 River Road. I want to extend my congratulations to Mr. James and the various co-hosts on the success of the podcast. Thank you for providing thought-provoking discussions each week. It's wonderful to hear from other female fans in the community and to hear coverage of characters that aren't always discussed at length. Thank you. So this actually means a lot to me that 1400 River Road took the time to actually make this voicemail because I think she's one of those incredible minds where if you go on her blog spot, which I'll definitely have uh, in my description uh, for Podbean and all my social media when uh, when this is up, is that she has like an incredible mind in how she views the original series, Fire Walk Me, The Secret Diary, and how she connects it and just finds these connections that wouldn't have crossed my mind or brings up things that... I wouldn't have thought of uh, beforehand. So yeah, no, I don't want to thank her for just taking the time to say that. One of the things I thought was really interesting is that she talked about how she thought it was really cool that I had a lot of female fans on. And the thing is that I didn't realize I was considered an issue until like probably like with like a probably year after I got into Twin Peaks because I think of during that time, I think of like the vlog lady was someone I watched a lot on YouTube. Uh, when I went to my first con, Pam from Between Two Worlds was someone I talked with for I think it was at least an hour and a half. And then, uh, as of course, as time's gone on, I've talked with more people. Like There's also Shirley Ladder from Between Two Worlds, where before I started the podcast, we actually talked a lot about Renette when we first actually met. And then, of course, talked about her more so on our episode. And then that's not even going to, you know, all the women like Blue Rose, where, you know, you have Courtney Stallings, you have Maya McBriar, Mary Hutter. Uh, then you have people on 25YL like Joyce Picker and Emily, all of which I think uh, bring in a lot of great insight. So honestly, I'm I'm glad that people really get a lot out of that. But yeah, no, it's uh, it's really cool that uh, she made took the time to add in that part. Uh, to build off from the characters that aren't discussed at length, for me, I think of like a lot of those characters where you wouldn't think that they have such limited screen time, but there's a lot of characters who are only in the show collectively for ten minutes or less that go a long way. Like for example, I mentioned how uh, how with Renette, where she was only in it for I think it was like less than 15 minutes across all all two seasons and the movie but for me there's so much about that character that just there's just so much that you can go off of that i just absolutely thought that it's a character that should be discussed because i just think about that for a lot of the characters in the mythos of twin peaks at large is that every character regardless of how big or small they do add a lot to the mythos at large and I think a lot of is that when I think of uh, these characters, I think a lot of the Log Lady intro for the pilot, where she talks about how the many lead to the one who is Laura. And I think about how all these characters, how to a certain extent, even if it seems indirect or just no relation at all, that there is some that ties uh, to a larger picture with them. And also just the personal connections that a lot of us fans have. So I just want to thank uh, both Twin Peaks Grammar and 1400 River Road for taking the time to do this because... I thought it was really nice to actually do a mailbag, and I hope the whole solo aspect end up working well for everyone. But I think that wraps up this episode, so hope you all have a great week, everyone. Together, forever.